the punk thing is really interesting. They tended to be vegans. But what happens is, you know, punk, they would bring veganism into the household and then it got more exposure. But when you've got a vector, a subculture vector that's bringing it into the mainstream, that is something to look out for. That's Helen Edwards, lecturer and author speaking. Helen's an award-winning columnist for the publication Marketing Week and has a PhD in marketing. In this episode, Helen and I are talking about how what happens at the fringes can end up becoming mainstream and how brands can use that knowledge to find the next big thing. But I think the themes that she explores can affect us all and not only brands and manufacturers looking to sell more stuff. Plus, having read a lot of her work, I really love how she explains the impact that small movements can have on all our lives. Now, Helen's got a new book out, From Marginal to Mainstream, Why Tomorrow's Brand Growth Will Come From the Fringes and How to Get There First, which we're going to go into a lot more detail about during our conversation. So with this, welcome back to Lives of Tomorrow. My name's Carla Bazashi, and I'm the CEO of WGSN, the world's leading consumer insight and trend forecasting company. And now enough from me, let's let Helen introduce herself. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, well, you've pretty much done it, actually, Carla. Yes, I am. <laughs> I have just written this book called From Marginal to Mainstream. I also teach at London Business School, so try to keep a leg in the academic world. So I teach on their MBA elective and I write and I consult. So, you know, try to bring lots of different areas of commercial life into my world. Amazing. Can you, there we are. I said to you before we started, I say the word amazing a lot. I've just said the word amazing, right? We're going to kind of play bingo how many times I I say that during this podcast. What was the pivotal moment or person in your career that's had the most impact on getting you to where you are today? Oh gosh, I think career-wise, it was actually doing an MBA myself. So there was a moment when I was in advertising and at that time in advertising, it was fairly easy to go up the scale quite quickly as a young person. And I suddenly realized that I was advising these companies. And I thought, I just really don't know very much about this. So I'm going to go and learn it. And I went and did an MBA myself and I met people and I learned how to do discounted cash flows. And that was a big moment for me. So it's, it's not a particularly interesting one, but it, it's the truth. I do think it is interesting, though, because as you said, You've moved up the career ladder very quickly, but where's that, maybe that real world experience? But also if you, people are advising or you're advising brands and they're making multi-million dollar decisions, multi-million pound decisions based on your advice, you want to make sure you're giving them the, the right stuff. So no, I think that's an excellent answer. Before we start the conversation, I'm just going to give you something to think about. You don't have to answer it now. We'll come back to it at the end. And that was, when was the last time that you learned something new? preferably something that has an impact in the way that you live your life or maybe the way that you see the world. So we'll come back to that at the end. Okay. Let's get into it. Growth, as we used to know it, according to you, is dead. (laughs) Now, is this just a phase the world is going through? Will normal growth be back when, I don't know, inflation lowers or hopefully there's peace in Ukraine? Or is this a kind of fundamental reset that the world's having? Gosh, that is big and interesting. Yes. I mean, when I wrote the book, what I, the point I was making really is that the big breakthrough growth in that business sense of, you know, there's a big disruptive kind of tech innovation coming. I think the, the fruits of, if you like, technology are becoming less and less and less. 
Then I think there's a second point which you've made, which I think is a really important one, which is that, you know, what does it mean to grow these days for businesses? And at some point as marketers and as businesses, we might have to start thinking about the anti kind of pure growth movement and think about growth in a much more multifactorial way. You know, it's not just growth of revenues and shares and profits. It can be a growth of consciousness or a growth of humanity as well. And I think certainly talking to my MBA students the future business leaders, that's the type of growth that they are interested in, actually. So yes, of course, I suppose it's more around those themes of conscious capitalism, actually. Yes, of course, we understand that business needs to make money and it needs to make profits, but it can it can do that. And it can also make a contribution to humanity and the planet, of course. So I think what it means to grow is on the move, actually. Now, your solution in here, and we talked about it right at the beginning, is to look to the fringes. So look to the marginal, because that could be where change comes from. So can you explain that in a little bit more detail? Yes. So what I mean is, the important thing to say is I don't think it's the only solution. I just think it's a a solution for breakthrough growth that has been, it's also not particularly new, I'm not pretending it's new, that it's been long neglected, I think, by business. So what I mean by that is rather than look at, I suppose, supply side disruption, you know, what technological innovation have we got that could disrupt a category, that classic Clayton Christensen stuff, is to actually look to people, not even consumers, but people and their behaviours, and look for something that's more like consumer-driven disruption. What are people doing that is probably a reflection of their broader values, around which there will be some consumption, but it's not driven by consumption. It's driven by a desire to live their lives a certain way. And what happens is when you start to look for these marginal behaviours, and by that I mean behaviours that people choose to do, that less than 3% of the population are doing at the moment, that are not directly connected to politics or religion, and not driven by consumption. So that was the sort of definition we set ourselves. We found about 50 of them just by looking. But what you see is that some, not all of these behaviours, suddenly break through, suddenly take off, suddenly become mainstream. And I was I was sort of fascinated by this because that's what happened with veganism. You know, veganism has been around since the late 40s. In 2017, it took off. And I don't know about you, but I work with lots of companies where they're like, ah, we need a vegan option. You know, and it feels like a scramble. And so I kind of thought, well, wouldn't it be better if companies were sort of a bit further ahead than that? playing catch up and maybe thinking about the margins as part of an innovation program can help. I think it's an early chapter in the book. Actually, it's the first chapter, isn't it? The chapter is called From Does Anyone Do That to Doesn't Anyone Do That? Am I getting that right? But essentially, from that point where the general population are like, oh my goodness, does anyone do that? To, oh, don't we kind of all do that in some shape or form? And it is that movement for something that's frowned upon in some shape or form. And, and you, you're calling it there, there's a resistance to something. And something has to happen to take that resistance down for more of the population. So I think with veganism, you were talking about the punk movement, which I thought was fascinating because probably most people don't think that the reason that veganism became more mainstream had something to do with the punk movement. Explain that for people who haven't read the book yet, because I thought that was a good light bulb moment for me in the explanation. So we really used veganism as a sort of case study and, and did a deep dive into its its journey, I guess, into the mainstream. And then we then looked at other cases like mindfulness to look for the same 
beacons, if you like, the same things that would happen. And it doesn't mean to say they're causal, they're just there, you know, and then you've got to make a, a conclusion about it. But the punk thing is really interesting because what we found was that among the other things that punks do, like wear a certain, have a certain look, they tended to be vegans. Now, what happens when a subculture like punk has a, and, and a subculture is more like to have a whole group of behaviors around which they define themselves. But what happens is, you know, punks in those days also had mums and dads and brothers and sisters and lived in households. And so they would bring, they were almost like a vector for the behaviour. They would bring veganism into the household and and then it got more exposure in pre-social media days. I mean, now I think social media does a lot of that work for us. And that's one of the reasons why I think these behaviours are going to kind of boil up and come more to the fore because they're so much more visible to us these days. But when you've got a vector, a subculture vector that's bringing it into the mainstream, that is something to look out for. Now, the other example that you use is tattoos. So we're, we're kind of switching topics here slightly. <laughs> But again, it's another example of something that was definitely out on the fringes, frowned upon by lots of people, seen as slightly out there and then sort of quite cool. And then the next thing you know, it feels like everybody's got a tattoo. So let's talk about the journey that tattoos took from the fringe through to the mainstream. Well, tattoos is a really interesting one because I think the other thing when looking at marginal behaviours is the, the notion of a global perspective. So even now in Japan, you know, tattoos are not as mainstream. And, you know, you'd have to cover them up if you went to an onsen, one of their, their baths. But in Western cultures, you know, tattoos were associated, as they are in Japan, well, they were associated with the gangs in Japan, but they're associated with being, with prisoners, frankly, and sailors and sort of servicemen. But in prison, it was one of the things that still people were able to show that they had some agency over themselves. So it, you weren't allowed to have a tattoo in prison. So if you then got one by using a guitar string or whatever, you'd somehow still have that rule breaking thing about you. And it was that notion of people coming out of prison with tattoos, along with low riding, you know, that was a prison, you know, where you don't have a belt and you'd, that came out of prisons that then kind of regular middle-class kids who were trying to look like rebels sort of saw some of that going on. And that was combined with a change in techniques of how we do tattoos. So more artistic techniques. And so it's often a combination of factors that will make the difference, actually. And then everyone's got a tattoo, you know. Even you? Even me. Yes. Well, I was a very early adopter. I don't even know why. So I got a tattoo in the early 90s in Southampton Docks. So you, you were slightly ahead of the curve then, I was right? So the as a trend forecaster, we, we talk about the trend curve and you've got the kind of early adopters and the innovators and you, you were at that end of this before it became to the you know, majority. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't easy to get one. I mean, I decided I wanted one. And honestly, I don't even know why. Ended up going down to Southampton Docks and getting one there. And then being worried for probably years that I'd picked up an infection. <laughs> okay, now we're getting to know the personal you. So I'm going to get to the part of the podcast where I fire some questions at you. Don't think too much about them. And this okay. is for us to get to know you a little bit better. So why do you work? I think I work to be part of the world. And I know you don't have to work to be part of the world, but I think there's that sense of the world that moves and shifts. And to be in the commercial world, you're very much in it. Okay. Do you have a sense of purpose in your work? Up to a point. I mean, I think if I, if I were honest, I wouldn't, I don't sit in front of my computer every day going, I've got a purpose. I think in marketing, you know, most of my work is in marketing. And I think I'm very aware that 
It's very easy to see marketing as like this profit driver. And I'm also aware that marketing done at its best is when the value is given to people first. And so that's always my starting point. It's always like, well, you know, if you think about the value that you're giving to people through whatever action you're taking, whether it's an innovation or a piece of branding or whatever, then the profits or the revenues, whatever, come second. So I, I guess if I had a purpose, it would be to always keep that front of mind. I think lots of people in the marketing industry think that way. Do you think as many of them as maybe should behave that way? This is not in the list of firing questions, by the way. This is just I'm now interested given what you've said. No, I don't think they do. And I'm not even sure many think that way. I think often they think, you know, how can we get this consumer to buy more of this? Or how can we get more consumers to buy more? You know, how can we get penetration? You know, how can we get them to pay more? I'm not sure they do think, what am I doing that adds value to someone's life that they would be prepared to pay for? And I think you've just got to flip it around the other way. And, and actually, when you do flip it around the other way, you're often more successful anyway. Do you have a sense of purpose in your life? Only in the sense of, I think, a lot a cliche. <laughs> I have a tattoo, so I'm not a walking cliche. But on this stuff, I probably am, which is, I think to try to get something out of everything. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm always so aware of how li how short life is. And actually even looking at some of these behaviours and the decades through which they've, makes you realise, you know, we're on this planet so fleetingly that you should just try and get something out of everything, even if it feels negative at the time, you know? It's a lovely purpose. I might co-opt that for mine. When are you the most creative? Well, this one's very local. I would say we have a beautiful graveyard near us in a valley, because I actually live in Bath and it's in a valley. And I think, I mean, it sounds terrible when I'm talking to the dead people in the graveyard, walking around it, they're an excellent audience. You don't get much heckling. They're very supportive. I've always found graveyards as very peaceful places, but I haven't found many other people who share that with me. And I remember I was house hunting, this is many years ago, and there was a house right on the edge of a graveyard. And I thought that would be a perfect location. But the person I was house hunting with at the time was it was a complete no-go, a complete no-go. I do find graveyards very peaceful. And I also, I, I love reading gravestones and thinking about the thought that's gone into that. So ah, I agree with that one as well. I do think of them as people. They're just, they're still people. They're still sort of there. So I don't, you know, when we say, I'm going to go and talk to the dead people is what we say uh, in our house. <laughs> going to go and have a chat with the dead people, see what they think. And come back with some amazing creative yeah. ideas because uh, no one's disagreed with you, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from wandering around graveyards, what makes you happy? I think, again, thinking back very recently, and we don't see it enough in this country, I think, and it's an odd one, it's when multiple generations are in the same space and clearly enjoying each other's company. I think there's something truly beautiful about that. And in our culture, we don't see it enough. I think you see it quite a lot in Southern Europe. I've noticed a lot in Italy. I noticed it in Japan when I travelled there. Oddly enough, I think you even see it more in America than you do here. But it's such a beautiful thing. And each generation can give the other so much that it's, I think it's, just, it's, a, it's such a miss for us, actually. Yeah, there's something very pertinent in that. Whenever I watch travel or food programmes, the ones which really speak to me are when they're dining with multiple generations of a family and you see how people interact and you see how maybe recipes would be passed down and interpreted. And yeah, it's kind of all that, the emotion, the love, the tension, kind of people are their best and their worst selves in those scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Slightly different topic. When are you offline? Gosh, hardly ever. Isn't that awful? 
when I'm asleep, obviously. And when I'm, I think when I'm fully engaged in something else, which isn't often enough, actually, and that's a wake up call for me. But I think when you're fully engaged in something else that you can't then respond to that email or see what that ping was about, that's when I'm offline and I probably ought to do it a lot more. Yeah, well, I think we probably all should do. The, the, I was uh, talking to my wider WGSN team today and we were talking about burnout and all the number of screens. And I just counted the ones around me while I was talking and, you know, which ones were lighting up and it's way too many. I mean, it should just be the one and you're concentrating on that one thing. When was the last time that you felt you were wasting your time and you only had yourself to blame for it? It will be watching something on TV. It will probably, I know exactly what it is. It's watching an afternoon of Catfish on MTV. Oh my goodness, there's some very blisteringly honest answers to some of these questions. <laughs> I'm never going to get that time back. And that is, it's where it is those times where you go, oh, I'll switch. And then you go, oh, I'm never going to get that three hours back, ever. Let's get back into this topic of fringes and how it moves to mainstream. So, out of that research, were there other, I'm going to use the trends word, I work in trend forecasting, but were there other movements, trends that your team could see on the horizon? that you think are really interesting and that brands, but also, you know, us normal people should be looking out for? Well, I think there were, I mean, the one at the very top of the scale is a big sort of one, actually. It's, it's just living off the sea. Now, what that doesn't mean is eating more fish. What it does mean is using kelp, which is this amazing source under the sea that grows like crazy. And it's a good protein source and it's very sustainable and you can use it for packaging. You can use it in beauty products. You can use it in clothing. And the reason it's at the top of the scale is it doesn't have the yuck factor of something like insect protein. People are very comfortable. They, they know that the sea is one of our natural resources. And there's that sense of, well, if we can use this amazing natural resource, we're probably going to look after the thing that provides it better. So big tick there. And it has multiple uses, which is another kind of big tick. So for, for mainstream people, the notion of living from the sea or using that natural resource in some way really ticked a lot of boxes for people because it intuitively just felt so right. And it didn't, the resistance was really very low. They were just kind of like, what could we do with it? That's incredible. And that's where business can kind of step in and go, hey, we can make packaging or I can produce a jumper with that, or I can produce a whole, you know, skincare range with it. That's, that's where business can kind of step in. So living off the sea, one of those themes, and um, I can say <laughs> the trend forecaster on this conversation, that is a big theme that we're talking about. And we're advising businesses in the beauty space and the food space and the packaging space that this is something that people should be concentrating. This isn't, I don't believe this is something which is years and years off. Now, it might be years away in terms of us feeling like we can see it in all of those things, but brands should be utilising now. How are they going to get those ingredients in? I think the packaging point is so important. Thinking about being more sustainable with packaging, which consumers, people everywhere are becoming so much more aware of. So completely agree with that one. And I think it's interesting that through your research, you are seeing that acceptance of it um, and that idea that there's less of a yuck factor and therefore it's going to be more acceptable is is a really important one and definitely worth remembering. What else was on the list? So I think then I, then I think there are some more that are a bit more polarizing. So if you take something like microdosing, which is taking very small amounts of magic mushrooms to get a very small lift, it's about one-tenth of a trip dose is what people take when they microdose. Now, 
that we had a sort of spectrum of resistance uh, because we really looked hard at resistance. So people can resist things in a very visceral, it's going to kill me way, or they can resist it and go, I'm kind of interested, but I just don't really know how I would do that. And if you're at the, I'm kind of interested, but I don't really know how I do it. You've got more potential. Now, microdosing sat at both ends. There were some people who were going, I wouldn't possibly, that's, that's drugs. That's mind altering drugs. I wouldn't do it. And then there were some people who were going, actually, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't vape, but this is a natural product. Really, what's the difference from coffee? And I do want to have that sense of relaxation and a little lift, and it's natural. What is the problem here? And I think legislation will change. It's not legal here, but it's legal in other countries like Canada. And I think legislation will change. I'm sure of it, actually. Well, not sure of it. I think it will. And then I think the opportunities for businesses that are in the social space, drinks companies, maybe, leisure company, you know, you know, food, that the opportunities there are really quite big. Now, you're working with predicting the future. Are you more anxious or hopeful for what's in store for us in years to come? I tell you, I'm hopeful, I think. My, actually, that sounds really like, I think I'm hopeful. I would say on balance, I'm hopeful because it's probably better to live like that than not. But also, I'm very, up until this point, I've never been someone who's like Gen Z, Gen X, you know, all that kind of generational, they all stand for this. But I'm very taken by Gen Zers, who I think are the biggest cohort of any generation that we've had. And I've looked at them in multiple categories and I looked at them for this book as well. And they are a group that, for me, do stand apart on a set of shared values around openness, curiosity, acceptance. They're not tribal and they're very curious. And I think that they have those values. I think as a generation, not all of them, of course, but those values sort of are part of that generation. And I think that is very hopeful <laughs> for the rest of us, actually. And even, you know, I'm teaching about 170 students at the moment. I see it in them, you know, so, and so it makes me very optimistic, actually. But coming back to your point in the conversation we were having about the punk movement earlier and those punks going home and talking to their brothers and sisters and their parents and their grandparents and that behaviour then rubbing off on people, I think that's why you can be hopeful because that younger generation and their sensibilities and their values do because that's who lots of us are talking to at home and it's challenging our preconceptions. It's challenging the way that we live our lives. It's challenging the way I run my business as an example, because you've got to listen to that feedback and think about what you take on board and how that might evolve all manner of things. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. They themselves are almost vectors to mainstream attitudes. And what was really interesting was when we looked at some of these behaviours, we looked at them with different age cohorts. And when we looked at them with a slightly older age cohort, you get the response that you might expect to a lot of them. Like, oh, that's disgusting. Who does that? Oh, it's ridiculous. When we showed it to the a younger cohort, you could almost see that they also thought some of them were a bit disgusting, but they would not say it. So you could almost see the, vis the visceral response, like you could see it, but then they'd say, well, obviously nothing's strange anymore. Anyone can do anything that they want to. And we wouldn't, I wouldn't judge. So if other, the response, even though their visceral response was similar, is almost like they took a beat and said, it's not okay to say that. I'm going to say something else. Nothing strange anymore. Nothing strange anymore. That's great. Big statement. Yeah. Helen, it's been a fascinating conversation. Really, really interesting. Before we wrap up, 
I'm going to come back to the question from the very beginning, which is when did you last learn something new that's had an impact on the way that you see the world or you live your life? I'm going to sound so shallow, but the thing I learned a couple of years ago was to paddleboard. And I absolutely love it. I love it for a couple of reasons. One is you don't really need to learn it. It's very easy. But then when you do it, everyone thinks it's more skilled than it is. So big win there. And you can be very showy-offy about it. And I think when you when I go paddleboarding, I always go on my own. It does give you that sense of peace, actually, that is very hard to find anywhere else. And then the other thing that I learned very recently, because I was looking at the aging brain for a project that I was doing, and there was an amazing piece of research out of the University of Texas, I think, that said when people learn a completely new skill, it reconnects sort of brain connections in a way that if you just keep doing crosswords because you've always doing crosswords, that doesn't happen. So then that made me feel even better about learning something like paddleboarding. So I might take up something new in another couple of years. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, I'd encourage everyone to go and read that book, whether you work in marketing, whether you're building brands, or you're just interested in how human behaviour evolves. It's a really fascinating read. So thank you so much for explaining it to us today. Thank you, Carla. Thanks. And that's it for today. Thank you again to my guest, Helen Edwards, for talking to me about how what happens at the fringes can end up in the mainstream and the impact small movements can have on our lives. Whether you're an individual, a startup or an established business, the themes Helen raised during our conversation will be relevant to you all. Do hope you found it as informative as I did. Let me know what you think about this podcast and the direction that you want it to be going in. Write to me on lives at wgsn.com to give me your input. Next week, my colleague Bethan Ryder, host of WGSN's Create Tomorrow podcast, is back with another episode, this time focusing on climate adaptive clothing. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. I'll see you next time. <laughs>